Okay, well, it is a privilege to be able to continue this morning with session number two. And as we were discussing uh, potential topics, this one seemed to have popped out as an interesting one, so I'm glad to be able to bring it now. Um, I've called this the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic, and you're probably surprised by that. Now, the point of this sermon is to, to take evangelism on the complete other side. In other words, what we've seen now is the evangelist at work in the life of Stephen yesterday in my story and how I got saved. Today we're going to make a massive bump forward to try and understand what the ultimate long-term effects of the gospel can be in the world. And this is a very interesting study. I was asked to do this some time ago by a church because they wanted to know what the Protestant work ethic was all about. So I had to do some studies on this, and I was fascinated to find out how it all came about. So before I start that, when you think of the Protestant work ethic, two men come to mind, two, uh, two um, preachers come to mind, Martin Luther and John Calvin. And since John Calvin was based in Geneva, Switzerland, and since that's where I live and that's where I minister, that's where we started a church a few years ago, I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about Switzerland. It's very interesting to know what kind of country Switzerland is. Who's ever been to Switzerland? Raise your hands. Okay, so several of you will be able to relate to this, okay? Now, Switzerland is a very amazing place. It is only 16,000 square miles with a population of about 8 million people. Australia has how many? 22? Oh, wow, you guys are huge compared to Switzerland, okay? Um... um Switzerland has a lot of things it's known for. Let me, let me just give you examples. Watches, right? Who's got a Swiss watch? Okay, all right, no problem. Who's got a Chinese, who's got a Chinese watch? All right, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, Switzerland does have some competition, okay? But just think about, I'm sure you've heard of these brands. Listen, Rolex, Omega, Breguet, Patek Philippe, Swatch, Breitling, Frédéric Constant, Chopard, Hublot, Jaeger Lacoutre, Longines, Tissot, Piaget, Rado, Raymond Well, Tag Hauer, and others. Have you heard of some of those? That's amazing. I mean, this little tiny country is like big time into watchmaking. Let me give you other things that you probably have heard about in Switzerland. The banking industry. I've heard, I don't know if this is true, my brother's a banker, I've heard that one-third of all the world's money is in Swiss banks. Small country of like just 8 million people. How about this? The Swiss franc. I just read this morning, or this day, day before yesterday, if the breaks that happens, if England pulls out of the European community, they are predicting that the Swiss franc will get even stronger as a refuge currency, which means that today you are welcome to come and... Put your money into Switzerland. Suppose you have a thousand Swiss francs. You can put your money in a bank. And one year later, you are guaranteed 999 francs back. You invest at loss. That's how strong Switzerland is. People would rather put their money in a strong currency and lose than put it in some currency like the dollar and don't know what happens tomorrow. Really true. Okay, let me tell you other things about Switzerland. Chocolate. Oh. I think we like chocolate here, okay? Have you heard of these brands? Cahier. Sorry, in English. 
Kair, okay, I don't know. Sushar, Sushard, Lint. Amen. Uh, amen. Can I hear an amen for Lint? Okay, 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 okay. How about Frey? Okay, oh, I bet you know this one. Toblerone. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a louder amen. Okay. How about Nestle? Okay, I can hear an amen, okay? You've probably never heard of this one. Faverger. You have? Wow. Okay, so we have Faverger in New Zealand. I mean, I'm sorry, in Australia. Okay. Okay, let me give you another one. Cheese fondue. Oh, man, Switzerland has some major cheese fondue. How about the Alps, the Matterhorn? How about yodeling? That's pretty Swiss, isn't it? Yeah. How about flag throwing? You ever seen those Swiss people throwing their flags? You ever seen that? Well, that's kind of Swiss. Um, technology. Switzerland, very, very big into machine precision. You know, industrial precision machines. Um, did you know that the little country of Switzerland has had 113 Nobel Prize winners? How about, did you know that the Pope in Rome has a special guard? This guard? You know who they are? The Swiss Guard. Do you know why? Because in the Middle Ages, when they got those guys on, the Swiss Guards, they were like the green berets of the world. They were the deadliest, the, the, the greatest, you know, protectors, killers, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, the Rambos of the time. So the Pope got them. That was a good move on his part, probably, okay? How about Bertrand Picard? Have you ever heard of that guy? You know what he just did? He's got that, uh, that, that, that electric plane, or whatever it is. It's, um, you know, the plane with, uh, just energy, no, no fuel. And he just went around the world. He's a, he's a really amazing guy. He's a Swiss guy. How about this name? I'm all telling you about Switzerland here, okay? Um, you ever heard of a guy called Roger Federer? <laughs> that amazing, the best tennis world player is a Swiss guy. That's, that's, well, maybe he's not best right now. I don't know. Do you know, how about the United Nations? They are headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. How about the Red Cross? Did you know that the founder of the Red Cross was Swiss, based in Geneva also? Oh, skiing. Okay, skiing in the Alps, really good. Uh, How about, it's probably the most famous country in the world for direct democracy. Direct democracy. In other words, in many places, like in Geneva, people are voting almost every Sunday for something. Very amazing democratic little country. The Swiss flag. Do you know what the Swiss flag looks like? Okay, it's not a red cross, it's a white cross. Okay, it's a white cross with a red outside, not a Swiss cross. Well, why? It was because of the founding of Switzerland. The oppressed Swiss refused to pay taxes to the Austrian Habsburgs. They came together and founded a federation of cantons in 1291. They wanted to stay free and trust in God. They signed a covenant which begins with the words, in the name of God, and they designed a flag that reflected their trust in God, the white cross of Christ on a red background. Pretty cool. But you didn't know that, did you? Amazing little country. So, why am I telling you all this? Don't you find it remarkable that a little country like Switzerland that has really no natural resources except snow and water is so well known around the world and that that country has actually a very prominent role in many areas of the world today? Why is that? What is it about this tiny country that has produced this? Well, I would like to suggest, and this is an idea that is certainly not original with me, that the reason that Switzerland is what it is today is largely because of one man. And what is remarkable about this man is that he was not a businessman, he was not a philosopher, he was not a politician, he was a preacher. 
I love preachers, okay? This guy was a preacher. His name is John Calvin. Now, a lot of people don't like John Calvin. I know there's a big debate on John Calvin. Um, problem is he's, he's always talked about for one certain thing, the sovereignty of God. But he has a whole lot of other things he taught about that are very interesting. And this is what I would like to show you today, okay? Um, and what I would also like to suggest is that he caused, really or caused, he was one of the prominent men behind the Reformation that he led from Geneva in the 16th century. And so we will see that this one man, and I've got to prove this now, okay, that this one man actually changed Switzerland. Many of the results we read about this morning already in Switzerland are because of him. It actually changed Europe. It changed America, and ultimately it actually changed the world in many, many areas. So that's what I would like to try and show you this morning. Now that I gave you the proposition, I've got to prove it. So I hope I'll be able to do that, okay? It's a fascinating story that, is, um, that hopefully will inspire us all, and that we will see the result, long-term result, of being faithful at proclaiming the gospel. God really used him. Now, the Lord used John Calvin in many ways. And there's a little book called The Legacy of John Calvin, His Influence on the Modern World by uh, David Hall. And this is, he develops a lot of these points I'm going to bring up today and several other books, but especially on the issue of the Protestant work ethic. So I'm going to zero in today just on this one issue, the Protestant work ethic. Is that a term that you're familiar with? You've heard this before, the Protestant work ethic. How Protestants work hard and create industry. And you'll see how all this fits together as we go. Hall and Burton say this, quote, John Calvin made one of his most enduring contributions as he paved the way for modern market-based business practices, which is referred to as the Protestant work ethic. Even his enemies, the number one enemies of John Calvin were obviously the Catholic Spaniards. They expressed, or a, a Catholic Spaniard expressed his impact in these bitter words referring to pro, the Protestant work ethic. He said, heretics, talking about Protestants, heretics, facilitate the trade spirit. So the Catholics were saying this about the heretic Protestants, they facilitate the trade spirit. So even the Catholics realize, wow, the Protestants have something going for them, they facilitate the trade spirit. So as that uh, an introduction, let me just give you a few uh, basic points. I don't have a PowerPoint, but this hopefully will be simple to follow. First of all, let's define the Protestant work ethic. Let's define it. The phrase, the Protestant work ethic, also sometimes referred to as the Puritan work ethic, was initially coined in 1904 by Max Weber in a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. To sum things up, Weber simply noticed through observation as he looked through history that the most prosperous countries in Europe in the late 1800s were the northern Protestant countries. Those countries that received the Reformation. He continued, he concluded that capitalism in these northern countries evolved when the Protestant ethic taught by John Calvin influenced Protestants to engage in the secular work world by developing their own businesses and engaging in trade. So to define things, capitalism is defined as an economic system in which trade, industries, and the means of production are largely and entirely privately owned, that's capitalism, private ownership, and operated for profit, 
Opposed to socialism, which speaks of social ownership, or communism, which speaks of common ownership. So Max Weber went too far. He concluded that wealth was a sign of election. In other words, if you're elected, if you became a believer, that God would give you wealth as a blessing. He went too far. That's not at all what Calvin said, okay? But we do notice, he did notice, that where Protestants went, work, industry, trade, and wealth happened. Question is, why? Why does that happen? Well, it boils down to two men, Luther and Calvin, as I already mentioned. As you know, maybe John Calvin, maybe you know this, John Calvin was French, born in 1509, and um, he became a Christian when he was about 14, 15 in university. He was really smart. And he got, he had to leave. He went to Strasbourg. He uh, wrote the um, the Institutes of Christian Religion. Then finally he came to Geneva in 1536. He stayed in Geneva for 25 years and preached in what we call St. Peter's Cathedral during these massive persecutions of the French Huguenots in France. So, John Calvin came to Geneva, and he just took his Bible, and he began to preach. He was one of the very first, since the Reformation, expositors. He would preach the Bible verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. He preached almost every day. He was what I call a preaching machine. He was an amazing preacher, preached a lot. Point two. Let me give you John Calvin's view of the Protestant work ethic. And what, you, what I think you'll be amazed about is how biblical all this is. This is very, very interesting. How did John Calvin's teaching develop the Protestant work ethic? Where did this whole concept come from? Well, the subject is the subject of what we call vocation, and it all comes out of the Ten Commandments. Okay? This is so interesting. Now, remember... The name Protestant work ethic was not coined until three centuries after Calvin by Max Weber. But the principles were developed by John Calvin. Now, this is what is revolutionary. Calvin viewed the Ten Commandments as a positive thing. Let me put it a different way. He had a fundamentally positive view of God's law. He felt that the Ten Commandments were most often interpreted too narrowly. This is critical to understand. Though it is true that nine commandments listed are negative in the Decalogue, Calvin believed, listen very carefully, that each commandment also required its opposite. In other words, if something displeases God, then its opposite pleases God. If something pleases God, then its opposite displeases God. Or said another way, if God commands something, then he forbids its opposite. Or if God forbids something, he commands its opposite. Are you following me? Okay. Now let's apply that principle to the Ten Commandments. It's thrilling. Let's take, for example, Exodus 20.14. If you have your Bibles, we can go there. Exodus 20.14. The Seventh Commandment. Let's take the seventh commandment. Exodus 20, verse 14. Okay? It says this. You shall not commit adultery. Pretty clear commandment. Well, Calvin said, if one was not to commit adultery, then he concluded that the opposite is true as well. That he should cultivate marital fidelity. 
This then became a pro-marriage commandment. God created marriage and he wants marriage to be honored. So work at it. And now you can preach a really positive message on marriage. Let's take the ninth commandment. Ninth commandment, verse 16. It says what? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does that mean? Don't lie. Negative commandment. Well, he concluded if one was not to lie, then the opposite is what? We should tell the truth. We should tell the truth. This commandment suddenly becomes a commandment on the importance of telling the truth and speaking well of your neighbors. Now, let's take the same principle and go to the Eighth Commandment. Eighth Commandment. Okay? And you see it in verse 15. Really complicated commandment. You shall not steal. Now, this is a very important commandment for our theme today. Because this commandment is actually the basis for the Protestant work ethic. Calvin concluded that if one was not to steal, then of course he should avoid theft, but the opposite is true as well. He should therefore protect his and others' property and, quote, exert himself honestly to preserve his own estate. You see, this commandment against theft suddenly becomes a commandment about hard work and about the right to own property and the importance of protecting what is rightfully yours through hard work. Note, folks, right here we have the essence of capitalism, the right to profit and the right to property. Right out of this Eighth Commandment, if you take its opposite. So, based on the law... Calvin did not have a negative view of money and wealth as a result. Yes, it was clear that mammon was not to be served or worshipped or overemphasized, but it was not to be ignored either. He said, Calvin recognized that money was a creation from the hand of God. He also warned this, and I quote, that it is rare for those with abundance to avoid becoming intoxicated with riches. I thought that's a great quote. He says, there's nothing wrong with wealth, but I have observed that many people who become very wealthy become intoxicated by their wealth. Isn't that a great phrase? That's the danger. It's not wealth, it's the intoxication of wealth that's dangerous. So there has to be a balance with wealth. He did not simply condemn riches as evil. He said, quote, one either serves money as a creator or uses money to serve the creator. Yes, Money can be dangerous, but money can be very good as well and even a means of serving the Creator. Now, that's the Eighth Commandment. You could add a lot of other passages. Proverbs 10.4 Poor is he who works with negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He said, hey, the hand of the diligent makes rich. You work hard, you're going to get richer. Nothing wrong with that, he says. Proverbs 13.11 Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 If anyone will not work, remember that one? Neither let him eat. I mean, if that's not a a verse to make you work, I don't know what is, you know? And that's the problem with a lot of our social services. We will help people who are lazy. The Bible says, you know, in, in Geneva, it's interesting, when Huguenots came, they were fleeing France from persecution, they handed out a lot of help. But if someone was lazy, no help in Geneva. You either work or you get out. 
That's the way it was. Now you wonder why Geneva became wealthy. Because it was a work, Protestant work ethic. Very interesting. Right out of the Bible here. If anyone does not work, neither let him eat. So Calvin knew that these principles applied to basic business practices. He knew that no plan and no action actually leads to poverty and that laziness leads to ruin. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Isn't the Proverbs amazing? So clear. So clear. Now, it's interesting. He had another concept based on this one out of the image of God. Remember, Genesis 1.27 and 28 says this, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. But God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and what? And subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. So he concluded that entrepreneurial activity is an expression of the creativity we receive when we were created in the image of God. See, Subduing the earth means, and I'm quoting him, that we were created to create things. We were made by God to take the stuff in the earth and and make stuff. Make things. Create things. Wealth is nothing less than a providential creation from God to be enjoyed and shared. So Calvin understood that as humans breathe, they are also producing, they are devising, they are repairing, they are creating. All that out of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. Let's go on. Let's go to the Tenth Commandment. This is really interesting. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet. So verse compares coveting and contentment. Coveting and contentment. Again, this is a negative commandment. It's a reminder that we ought not to covet what belongs to our neighbor. So we're not supposed to covet his house, his wife, servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, if you these days have been coveting the ox of your neighbor, that's bad, okay? Don't covet his ox. But now let's look at the positive. See, every commandment has a positive, right? So if I'm not to covet these things, that means I'm actually supposed to honor the fact that my neighbor owns these things and I must do all that I can to help him protect what belongs to him. I need to help him protect his estate. That also hugely promotes the right to private property. If I am not to covet my neighbor's house, that means I am allowed to own my own house and preserve it as mine. That's okay. And my neighbor is called to honor and respect what is mine. See, this gives you a very, very positive outlook on private property. In fact, I'm allowed to own a house, my own wife, that's really good, my own servant, my own oxen, my own donkeys, basically anything. I'm not to covet what belongs to another, but I'm allowed to own my own property. 
But it's not over. I hope this is interesting to you. To me, it's fascinating. Let's go to the fourth commandment. Fourth commandment. Verse 8. Look at this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, this commandment brings up a whole other aspect of the Protestant work ethic. It's what we call the sacredness of ordinary work. Okay, the commandment says what? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Prior to Calvin, the Catholic Church had basically divided work into two categories, sacred and secular. Sacred and secular. The call of God, they said, was reserved only for the clergy. You are called to the ministry. This is actually a mistake we still make today, you know. Someone who's being ordained and going into the ministry would say, you are being called to the ministry. All you other people aren't. Really? That's actually a mistake. I mean, we know what we're saying. We're saying you're being called to vocational ministry. I spoke at this at the school yesterday, okay? So we understand. When we talk about call, we're saying that some are called to, like, to be paid to be professional ministers, which is okay. But actually, Calvin is saying, no, 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 no. The Catholic Church is really that. They, they created this difference between sacred and secular. Therefore, they considered that work was simply ordinary work. They had a very low view of work as a result because the sacredness of the call to the priesthood, ah, that was from God. The rest of the stuff was just like ordinary work. But Luther and Calvin changed that. According to Calvin, the fourth commandment clearly taught the necessity to rest on the Sabbath day. But it did not stop there. The fourth commandment also taught its opposite. Namely, if you're supposed to rest, what's the opposite? You got it. If you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day, that's one day. There's six other days. What are you supposed to do on those six days? Work. It's as simple as that. He thought, wait a minute. Does this apply only to the clergy? No. Who does this commandment apply to? Everybody. So if I've got a whole commandment just for me and my work, he's telling me to rest on one day and work for six days. That means God's got a very high view of work. And he has a very high view of all work. That's what exactly Calvin said. People, is this what we call the dignity of ordinary work? We are all called to work, no matter what our work is. God expects people to work six days and rest on the seventh. What kind of work? It doesn't say. Therefore, it's all kinds of work. No distinction is made. And you see, God could have made the entire universe in a second, but he didn't. He made it in six days and rested on the seventh. Have you ever thought about that? God could have made all of this like that. He didn't. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. That's a long time. I mean, we know Jesus created water and wine, you know, he gave fish and bread, and like instantly, he created wine instantly. Why did it take God six days to do that? To teach us a lesson. To teach us a lesson. To show that there is dignity in work and dignity in rest. God rested, so are we supposed to rest. Suddenly, this is so interesting, all work is considered a call from God. All types of work are implied in the fourth commandment. Work is not evil. It is a necessity filled with dignity. You see, Calvin elevated the discipline of lawful vocations to the status of holy calling. Very, very important what I'm going to say now. This is a new understanding of the dignity of work that was so different from the Catholic Church and which really changed the world. There was now a sacred element to ordinary vocation. One could now be called called to be a doctor, 
called to be a lawyer, called to be a teacher, called to be an entrepreneur, a printer, a farmer, a government official, a merchant, or whatever. Suddenly, all business and commerce was elevated and honored, unless, of course, it was somehow immoral. All vocations were considered lawful and good, just as much as that of a clergyman or a pastor or a preacher or a deacon. Business, commerce, industry were heightened by Calvin's principles, and those who adopted these became leaders of modern enterprise. See, suddenly, money is not bad. Suddenly, business is not bad. Suddenly, hard work is not bad. We knew that in the Bible, but it had to be brought out during the Reformation in contrast with the Catholic Church's view of this. But he went further still, Calvin. He contended that since God reigns everywhere, he is omnipresent, his followers should be entrepreneurs in every strategic institution. He says, guys, go work everywhere. No area should be avoided. For example, government, civil society, commerce, media, law, education, the church, even in the arts. No vocation is better or worse than another. These folks are the foundation principles behind the Protestant work ethic. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That includes your work. Whatever God has called you to do, that is a high, high dignity as far as the call of God in work. Point three. You following? Okay. Luther's view of the Protestant work ethic. And you'll see how all this is linked to the gospel in just a minute, okay? I was inspired here by a man named Tim Keller. He's a pastor of Redeemer's Church in New York. And uh, he talks a lot about Luther and his, his, uh, his perception of work. Luther affirmed that it is wrong to divide the world into spiritual and secular because of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Remember 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. Let me read it to you. 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. And coming to him, as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, listen, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he looked at this and he said, wait a minute, it says, we, all of us, coming to him as living stones rejected by men, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So he thought, wait a minute, the Catholic Church divides the world between, you know, spiritual and secular. He says, no, we are all, we are all being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. All of us. All Christians. We are all consecrated priests. We are all part of the holy priesthood. We are all a holy nation, correct? Well, he concluded, since every believer has equal spiritual status before God, all of their occupations must have equal status before God as well. I mean, if my person and your person are identical, okay, I'm a professional pastor, preacher, missionary, you may just have a, just, see, even in my vocabulary it's wrong, you may just have a secular job. See, I made the slip. We, we still have this ingrained us. 
It's not just. We are all called of God since we are all equal before God. We are all a spiritual house. We are all a holy priesthood. Therefore, my occupation is as important as yours and vice versa. Folks, this was revolutionary. All vocations are now perceived equal before God. Luther said, I quote, Pastors, monks, nuns, and popes are no holier than farmers, shopkeepers, dairy maidens, or latrine diggers. You know what he was saying? You can be a latrine digger. You are just as important in the eyes of God than the Pope. Now, he's not talking about spiritual doctrinal accuracy. He's just talking about the position. This was revolutionary. In the spiritual kingdom, I continue to quote him, in divine egalitarianism, peasants are equal to kings. All are sinful beings who have been loved and redeemed by Christ. So, then he asks this question. Luther. Well, then why did God institute work for people in the first place? I mean, why do we work? You ever thought about that before? Why do we work? I'll bet you have thought about that on bad days. <laughs> You're going, why am I doing this? You know, why do I get up? Why do I go spend all these hours doing something that I may like or may not like just to, you know, get a paycheck and pay my rent and go back the next day? And it's like this, this cycle of life. And you kind of wonder why? Why are we doing this? I'm going to try and give you some answers, okay? Hope this will encourage you. One of the answers was based on Mark 12. You know what I liked about guys like this? You know, they didn't have all the distractions that we have, and they thought very deeply on these issues, you know? Wow, it's unbelievable. Mark 12. Okay, now we're trying to answer the question, why do we work? And again, these are preachers giving us what the Bible says about these issues. Mark 12, 28 to 31. You know these verses very well, maybe not in this context. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, Luther looked at this in the context of work. He's saying, okay, so what are we supposed to do? What is the greatest commandment? To love God. And what is the second commandment? To love our neighbor. Aha! That's it. He concluded, our work, listen very carefully, is a means by which we love and bless our neighbor and people in the name of God. My work, whatever you do, according to him and according to these commandments, is a way that God has designed for me to bless other people and to love my neighbor as myself. Listen to how Luther perceived our daily work. He says, our work is actually, and I quote, the mask of God behind which he wants to do all things. So God is actually blessing people through me and my work. Example, example, think about the food we eat. We're going to have lunch. We had some very nice cookies here. What do you call those biscuits, cookies? 
cookies, okay? And we're going to have lunch and dinner, and we eat three times a day. We have snacks and you know, ice cream and stuff. There's a lot of interesting food, right? Now, could God have given us all the food we need without having to plow and plant and water the fields to get it? Yes. But He doesn't. He doesn't. I mean, God created, I mean, Jesus created wine, bread, fish, instantaneously. God gave manna to Israel instantaneously. Quail, came, quails. I mean, God has no problem providing food instantaneously. He's done it. But that's not the norm. Why not? Because, according to Luther, he wants us to participate in the blessing of the dignity of work, and our work then becomes the mask of God behind which he does all things to bless other people. So, when the farm girl milks the cow to give you milk, when you drink that ice-cold milk in your cereal, you go, boy, I love that milk. So good milk. Well, the person, he says, the farm girl who gave you the milk, is God's way of giving you milk. He did not have to use her, but he does. He provides the milk through her work, through the cow also that produces it, okay? But he produces and provides you milk through her work. God is using her to bless you. When farmers grow wheat, when bakers bake bread, when, or bake it, when the transporter transports it, when the grocer sells it, God does not have to do it that way, but he does. God could have just plopped it into our plates. I mean, he could have designed it where we say, okay, Lord, it's lunchtime. Here's my plate. Boom! The food appears. He could have done it that way for each one of us. Hey, what do you want today? I'd like roast beef and corn on the cob. Boom! Appeared. He could have done it that way, but he doesn't do it that way. Because he wants people to be used in their work to bless other people. According to him. So when the baker and the farmer work, they are God in disguise. They are the masks of God. God is loving you and distributing gifts through work. You are, in a sense, acting in the place of God as we bless people through our work. He has a whole thing on birthing, like putting babies in the world. This is really interesting. Luther says, you know, God could have made it that every human being came instantly and directly into life from dust. He did it like that for Adam. I mean, we could have just said, uh, God, we'd like a baby. Okay, take a piece of dust, put it here, boom, person. He could have done it that way, right? That's not how it works. That is not the way it's done today. Okay? God uses parents to birth people. Parents, according to Luther, are the mask of God who actually does the work. Man's role in birthing is actually quite minimal when you stop and think about it. Luther's conclusion was in this. When you marry and bear children, that is actually a calling of God. It is God's way of bringing life into the world. It is God in disguise. Hence, parenting has inherent dignity. When you work, when you bake, when you dig a ditch, when you build a bridge, when you write a play, when you manage a head funge, when you are the captain of a cargo ship or whatever, it is God distributing his gifts. God is giving people what they need to flourish through work of other people. So, 
You know what? I love cargo ships. I love them. You know why? Because they brought me my iPhone from somewhere. And whoever made that iPhone, I mean, think about all those people. I guess they're in China. I don't know who makes iPhones. I think it's Chinese people. I mean, wow, that piece of glass, the button that works, the battery. I just changed my battery for $50 in America. I mean, this guy was putting, the screws are so small. It's incredible in an iPhone. And these little tiny chips. I mean, who's making all this stuff? People. And God is using their work to bless me. Now I can like, boom. Whoa, my iPhone works. I can call someone. I mean, we live in the coolest world, do we not? It is amazing. It is amazing. You see, all work has dignity. All of it. Think about this one. The Son of God came into the world. We know He created bread, fish. I mean, He created anything. He stopped storms. Do you ever thought about the fact that he had a job? What was his work? Does that ever kind of strike you funny? The Son of God was making furniture out of wood. I mean, he could have just gone, wheelbarrow, boom, and the wheelbarrow would have appeared. He could have done that, but that's not the way it worked. It's not the way it worked. You see, see the dignity in work? The dignity in work. Work thus matters to God. It's interesting, we spend 90% of our time in work. 90% of our time, probably about. So it's really good to understand that our work is a way that we bless other people. It really makes a difference. You realize that you have been called by God to work to the glory of God to do whatever you do, whatever God has called you to do, with the gifts you have and the opportunities you've received, and whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You have total and absolute dignity in what you do for the Lord. By the way, Adam worked before the fall. Isn't that strange? No, it just shows that work was part of the plan of God. That's why those who don't want to work should not even eat, because that was designed by God. We bless people. So, what I think is so exciting is all, all that came right out of the Word of God. So, what are the effects? This is where I want to get to. I mean, Calvin is a gospel preacher, right? He preached the gospel, preached the Word of God. You know, Luther was too, all these reformers. They preached the gospel, people got saved, they began to apply these principles. What happened? What happened with these principles? Let's start with Geneva. What happened in Geneva? Business, commerce, and profit-making enterprises would take on a new cast after Calvin. His teaching liberated believers to use the market for God's glory. Hall, in his book, says that Geneva was transformed during the time of Calvin into a visible, bustling form of economic development. It became, quote, a locus of growing intellectual and commercial ferment. The evidence was the founding of Calvin's Academy and the presence of the modern financial institutions. Later on, 
the Medici Bank, for example, Geneva became an ideal center for perfecting and exporting reform. Where Calvinism spread, so did the love for free markets and capitalism. Yes, Geneva greatly prospered during Calvin's day and in the years that followed. For example, this is interesting, prior to Calvin's arrival in Geneva in 1536, Geneva had 50 merchants, 3 printers, and a few of any nobles. By the late 1500s, Geneva was home to 180 merchants and increased an increase of 130, 113 printers, there were only three when Calvin got there, and publishers, an increase of 110, and at least 70 aristocratic refugees who claimed nobility. I mean, Geneva was transformed business-wise by this preaching, by this perception. You see, when you have the right view of money and work, when you establish laws that allow you to do business honestly, that's important, you've got to have just laws to protect you. And when you are motivated to do your work to the glory of God, things begin to change. Prosperity will follow. I'm not talking about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It has nothing to do with that. This is simply just prosperity coming from good, solid, honest work. You are motivated to work and to create. You are motivated to produce quality because you're doing this to the glory of God. And this is precisely what has characterized Geneva and all of Switzerland ever since. We went through all those symbols earlier, right? I mean, high quality. <coughs> Even, do you have luggage that's Swiss luggage? You can buy Swiss luggage? Do you like that luggage? Probably do, right? It's really expensive. Why? Quality. I don't think it's made in Switzerland. Someone has borrowed, I believe, that emblem to label something super, super quality. Switzerland has that sense to it, right? High quality, efficient, prosperity. Everything in Switzerland is quality. For example, if you go to the houses, I live in France, and you go to my brother's house who lives in Switzerland a mile away, it's a whole different world. In my house, in our house, when you slam our door, the whole house trembles. In our house, my brother's house, a Swiss house, when you slam the door, you hear, Poof. it's like solid Swiss quality. I mean, it's unbelievably different. It's a world of a difference. The banking industry, the chocolate industry. Let me, let me read this quote. Quote. I got this on, on Google, some website. It is remarkable that it was the Swiss of all people who enjoyed such success with chocolate despite the high prices they had to pay to import the raw ingredients such as cocoa and sugar from abroad. Their achievement is due in no small part to their uncompromising pursuit of quality, something which remains the recipe for success to this day. This is a secular uh, description of Switzerland. Why? Because ultimately it started with wanting to work to the glory of God. Interesting. Watches is the same way. I mean, uh, the watch industry is interesting. It was the French Huguenots that brought watches to Switzerland. Under Calvin, um, this is interesting, under Calvin, you know, Calvin didn't get everything right. One of the things, he, he, he forbid jewelry. The jewelry is the, it's like, you know, uh, extravagant. Unless it served a purpose. Then you're allowed to wear it. Watches served a purpose. So they made like the fanciest watches you could imagine, you know. I mean, really beautiful watches, but they served a purpose so they were okay. And um, 
And so Patek Philippe, if you go to their museum in Geneva, they show how the watch industry was really created as a result of the Huguenots. So those are some of the effects in Switzerland. Now, what are some of the effects in Europe? In Europe. Well, you don't have to go far. If you come to Geneva, there's the Reformation Wall. It's a big monument there. And on this wall, there are eight bas-reliefs, kind of carvings, with, that represent what happened as a result of the gospel being proclaimed by Calvin around the world. You have Germany, Holland, France, Switzerland, Scotland, England, America, and Hungary. And it shows the effects around the world of the Reformation as it went and spread. What was revolutionary about Calvin's academy in Geneva is that not only it trained pastors in religious studies, but also provided studies in law, medicine, history, and education. And this was exported around. Let me give you one example. If you go to the Holland mural, there's a little Holland section there, okay? Calvinism spread through Europe in the 16th century and eventually reached the Netherlands, Holland. Netherlands, at the t- that point, belonged to Spain. And the Catholic king was the Holy Roman Emperor. And he had condemned Luther and had launched the Inquisition. Well, in 1581, seven of the northern provinces revolted against the king in the act of abjuration in 1581. And they elected a guy called William of Orange, the Prince of Orange. You may have heard of him. He was a Protestant and he became their leader. Holland thus became independent of Spain in 1648 and remained Protestant. The southern states are today Belgium and Luxembourg, Catholic. Holland is today Protestant, at least historically Protestant. Now, that mural of Holland shows the influence of Calvinism around the world, not only religiously, but also politically, socially, and economically. So, Calvinism coming to Holland ushered in what they call the Dutch Golden Age. Rich Calvinist merchants and Protestant refugees fled to this free area of Holland and transformed Amsterdam into the one of most important ports in the world. The famous Dutch East India Company, you've heard of them, right? Because I think probably came all the way to Australia in those days, I don't know. But the Dutch East India Company was created by Protestants just 20 years later in 1602 and held a monopoly on Asian trade for 200 years. Very interesting to see the immediate effect that this had on entire countries. Ladies and gentlemen, the spirit of democracy and liberty and freedom and enterprise and industry and justice was started in Geneva, spread like wildfire. People from around the world would come to Geneva to learn and export these ideas. And they went everywhere. They went to Germany, Scandinavia, Latvia, Estonia, Holland, Switzerland, obviously, England, Canada, the United States, probably even to Australia. I don't know the history of Australia that well. Amazing. And I could say these same things for all the countries where the Reformation went to. So, uh, just about America, it's interesting, as the uh, Reformation went to America, you know, through the Puritans, you know, the Puritans, they kind of had a bad reputation, but they were the Bible believers. They went to America to escape persecution and be able to have freedom of religion. 
And they were greatly inspired. And they believed in the vocation, working to the glory of God. This is actually what made America, in a way, what it is today. It's that vocational. It's like, I'm a born-again Christian now. I want to work to the glory of God. I want to be industrious. And they exported these ideas, and they brought them to America. And inspired by Calvin that we see on the Reformation wall, the Puritans were incredibly industrious people, and they had revolutionized attitudes about work. Why? Because they elevated... They said, every step and stroke of your trade is sanctified. They said, everything you do is sanctified by God when you are a believer. And they rejected the dichotomy of sacred and secular. For example, Cotton Meyer, a Puritan, says this, quote, Every Christian ordinarily should have a calling. That is to say, there should be some special business wherein a Christian should, for the most part, spend the most of his time, and this so he may glorify God. So he's saying, look, Pick your vocation and stay there and glorify God with your vocation. That's what he was saying. And one of the direct results is that now you consider yourself a steward who serves God in his work. I want to glorify Jesus Christ in my work. John Cotton put it this way, serve God in thy calling and do it with cheerfulness and faithfulness and a heavenly mindset. Incredible. Rich John Baxter says this, The purpose of work is obeying God and doing good to others. And he added, the public welfare or the good of of the many is to be valued above our own. He says, I work to value and help others. I want to help them more than even myself. Ah, that's the second commandment, the second greatest commandment. Help thy neighbor as yourself. Cotton Mather says this, quote, God has made man a societal creature. We expect benefits from human society. It is but equal that human society should receive benefits from us. We are beneficial to human society by the work of that special occupation in which we are to be employed according to the order of God. So, with that kind of attitude, these Puritans were pouring to America. They're going, man, I'm going to work to the glory of God. Cooper, who was the prime minister of the Netherlands in 1901, says this. Amazing quote. The prime minister of Holland says this. In the rise of... To, to America. He's in America. He's saying this to Americans. In the rise of your university education... In the decentralized character of your local governments, in your championship of free speech, and in your unlimited regard for freedom of conscience, in all of this, it is demonstrable that you owe this to Calvinism and to Calvinism alone. So he was actually giving great credit to a preacher, John Calvin, for this whole view of the Protestant work ethic. So let me kind of start closing this up here. What has the effects on the world been? This is very interesting. John, John Sebastian Bach signed each of his original musical scores with SDG Soli Dea Gloria. To God alone be the glory. He wrote, he was a musician. And he got it. He realized, hey, wait a minute. I'm a composer. God made me to compose. So I'm going to compose to the glory of God. Wow, I got chills just thinking about this. So exciting. So he glorified God with his music. Rembrandt glorified God with his art. He said, I'm a painter. God made me a painter. I'm going to glorify God and paint to the glory of God. Milton glorified God with his poetry. Althusius glorified God with his political theory. Grotius glorified God with his thinking on international law. Adam Smith glorified God in his development of economics. David Hall says, Calvin's thoughts seem to unleash development and progress in numerous vocations in life. 
You see, in whatever area you are working in, you can glorify God in it. Recently, I was uh, looking at this thing called the Legatum Prosperity Index for 2014. You probably never heard of it. I've never heard of it either. It's a study on the rates and the prosperity of different countries around the world. Okay? Their overall prosperity, economy, entrepreneurship, governance, education, other factors of wealth. Number one on the list. This is the best of all. Are you ready? Norway. Number two. Switzerland. Number three. This will blow you away. New Zealand. Ah, sorry about that. I don't know what to say about that. Okay, wait, wait. You do show up on the list. Hold on, just a second, okay? Yeah, recount, <laughs> yeah, recount exactly. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. I'm really apologetic, okay? I could have lied, but I won't do that, okay? Number four, Denmark, Canada, Sweden. Number seven, Australia. All right, okay, Australia. Eight, Finland, Netherlands. The United States is number ten. Wow, okay. 11, Iceland, 12, Ireland, 13, United Kingdom, 14, Germany, 15, Austria. You know what's interesting about that list? It is that 13 out of the 15 most prosperous nations of the world today were all countries that were affected by John Calvin's teaching as he preached the gospel and as he taught on the Protestant work ethic that we can glorify God in our work. They adopted the Reformation. You know what? I think John Calvin in many ways changed the world. It is so interesting. John Calvin and, of course, Martin Luther as well. So you know what? You know why I like this? You know why I like this study so much? Because Martin Luther and John Calvin, you know what they were? They were preachers. I love preachers. I love you, Jeff, okay? Keep preaching, brother. (laughs) Now, I love you too. But I just think... How cool is it that a preacher can have such a major impact? Actually, it's not even the preacher. You know what it is? It's the faithfulness to the Word of God. That's the key. This is the end result of evangelism. As we preach the gospel, as we take one verse, five minutes, a little bit of courage, you see a person come to Christ, his whole worldview will change. And he will begin to understand, wow, now I can do what I do in my job and whatever I do to the glory of God, that guy or that woman could change the world. They could literally change the world. It's happened before. Why won't it happen again? So here's my conclusion. Number one, all vocations are a call from God. All of them. Whatever you do. Hey, Joseph was a prime minister. Jesus was a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker. It doesn't matter what you do. Do it to the glory of God. Number two, all vocations are the mask of God. We use our vocation to bless other people. That'll make you feel good Monday morning, uh, Tuesday morning when you go back to work tomorrow. Uh, no, I'm on Tuesday. Do you have a, you have a long weekend, don't you? Yeah. yeah, right. Whenever you go back to work, you can go back and say, hey, my work, think about this. How is it blessing other people? That'll make you feel really, really good. Number three, all vocations should be done to the glory of God. All vocations, also for four, has a goal of making society a better place. It's not the end result, but that is what happens. That is what happens when we work to the glory of God. And five, my work can be a wonderful platform from which to share the gospel, especially in difficult countries. Yes, we can use our work platform to share the gospel and perpetuate this to others. So, when you come to Geneva, one day... You can see all this on the Reformation wall. So exciting to see how the world has been affected by all this. 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this uh, well, this subject that we looked at this morning, how the Word of God can change lives in such a radical way as to ultimately change countries and change the world. Lord, this should be a great encouragement for us to continue to proclaim the gospel, knowing that you are working in the lives of those who come to Christ. They will find dignity in their work. They can proclaim the gospel, and we can see our nations continue to be changed until your return. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.